Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Political State from the Oklahoma. I'm Ben Felder here in the Oklahoma's downtown video studios. Joining me on this week's episode is Justin Wingeter, Dale Denwalt, and our special guest this week is Adam Luck, who is the CEO of CityCare and a member of the Oklahoma State Board of Corrections. Adam, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate yeah, it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Well, in today's episode, we're going to get into a little bit about the governor's race, some new polls coming out. We're going to dissect that and see what that means for Kevin Stitt and Drew Edmondson. We're also going to take, uh, talk a little bit about the U.S. Senate confirmation process with Kavanaugh and a look at some of the thinking for Oklahoma's two senators. But in this first segment, the reason why we have you here, Adam, is uh, criminal justice has been kind of a hot topic of late. Yeah. Uh, here in Oklahoma, at least for the last few years, and why would it not? We've regularly been at the top of the list for incarceration rates. Now we lead the world um, in total incarceration rates. Um, But something that we mentioned on this podcast, and Dale, you mentioned it a lot, is that it's easy to forget that this whole idea of trying to be smart on crime or to, you know, find ways to lock up fewer people is kind of a reversal from where we were maybe even, you know, fewer than a decade ago, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely there's been a, a significant shift. I think I think for a couple of reasons. I think one, uh, and we talked about this earlier, but just the fact that Governor Fallon really created some political capital and room for people to actually talk about this. And and granted, there was some going back and forth there for a couple of years, but really, you know, when she was reelected, she came out and said, "This is going to be one of my top three issues for the rest of my term as as governor of the state of Oklahoma." Um, but I think there's been a couple other things. I think you see, you know, Texas now they're looking at 15 years of history, and now they're they're starting to see some really significant outcomes, right? So they're closing, they've closed eight state institutions. They've cut their juvenile population by 52%. Um, they're a state that's right next door to us, and in many ways very similar to the situation that we're facing as a state right now. And so all of a sudden, you know, where we didn't have as much of that data and evidence, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, now there's a very stark contrast between what's happening in Texas, what's happening in Oklahoma. Um, and then I think you also see, specific to our context, programs like Remerge in Oklahoma City and Women in Recovery in Tulsa that are taking a vastly different approach than what we've taken traditionally to incarceration. And we're also getting vastly different outcomes at a far lower cost to taxpayers um, and people in the state of Oklahoma. So I think those things combined have really created a, a unique environment where people can actually talk about this. And whether it's from a human capital perspective and saying, how are we going to end these cycles of injustice and incarceration and marginalization and addiction? Or from a fiscal perspective and saying, hey, we're spending 10 times what it would cost to put this prison in a program that's actually going to address the root causes of their criminal behavior. Um, I think the fact that we can talk about it from both of those perspectives now is, is huge and something that didn't exist 10 years ago. Yeah, and I think two points that you that you mentioned that I, I want to get into, you know, one is uh, Texas. We don't like to fancy ourselves as a state that follows Texas, but we do. I think, and Justin, you reported a couple weeks ago in some of the efforts that Texas is doing and maybe, yeah. you know, the ideas that they have for decreasing that prison population. But the second thing, you mentioned political capital and Governor Fallon, you know, kind of offering that political capital because an a state like Oklahoma, um, you, you haven't seen a lot of lawmakers that were eager to get out there and start talking uh, what, what would be perceived as soft on crime for a lot of voters. How did how is it that when the gov- when Governor Fallon um, started talking about this regularly and championing this as an idea, how does how did that fall down to the legislature and maybe give some of those members the, you know the chance to say okay maybe maybe this is a direction mm-hmm. you know that will be safe for me to go in? Yeah, I think just initially the fact that it was a topic of conversation because it's such a growing issue, um, whoever is in control, whoever has the majority, has to talk about it. You can't just act like it doesn't exist. You can't act like we're not the number one incarcerator 
not just in this country, but in the world. Mm -hmm. You can't pretend like we don't incarcerate a greater percentage of our population than Brazil or Iran or Cuba or those three combined. I mean, you just, you have to talk about it, right? And so I feel like at a time when it was really growing as an issue, Governor Fallon also started to talk about it. And so Republicans um, in the legislature in general kind of started to realize like, oh man, we, we really got to do something about this. And oh, by the way, there's, you know, 30 other states across the country that have also come to the same conclusion and have also started to do things differently. So I feel like it's not just Oklahoma or Texas, it's nationally. It's a huge point of conversation. Um, and we are just starting to get into these, you know, five, 10, 15 year markers where states are really starting to see some of the savings of making some of these policy shifts um, and getting far better outcomes. So I feel like it, it began with Governor Fallon, um, but it's also because it's a growing issue um, and it's only gonna get worse until we make some significant investments and policy changes. You, uh, you came back to Oklahoma uh, while you were in grad school from mm -hmm. Harvard to, to work on this problem, mm -hmm. to work on this issue. Uh, Oklahoma, uh, you were telling me, asked for some help in uh, trying to figure out where we were in criminal justice. Mm -hmm. um, was there anything that was really surprising to you? And in talking to, I'm sure you talked to many legislators and uh, state officials, was there anything that really uh, shocked them that you found? That summer I spent three months back here I went to a prison for the first time. I went to the Remerge program for the first time. Um, and for the first time really dove very deeply into the policy, um, educated myself on national best practices. And so I feel like that, that spectrum of experience, right? Like initial exposure to the problem, some education, and then given a vision and hope of what change actually looks like, um, it left me changed forever. I mean, you can't, you can't go through those things and not come out in a different place. And I feel like when I interact with legislators and, and even you know my friends and people that I talk to about this, um, part of what I try and do is walk them through that spectrum of experience, right? So if you've never been to a jail, I want you to come with me. I want you to come with me and walk through the Oklahoma County Jail. If you've never looked at another human being through the window of a cell, then I want you to do that because that will speak more loudly and more impactfully to the root of this issue in your heart than anything that I could ever say. Because ultimately that's what's gonna keep you up at night, is wrestling with like, why was I on this side of the cell and why were they on that side of the cell? And I think ultimately when people have to walk through that process and think through it, the conclusions they'll come to is like, really the only difference is things that I was given that maybe that person wasn't. And even if it's hard work and work ethic, well, who taught you that? Did you have two parents that were there that were committed? Maybe they didn't. Um, and so for me that's, that's what really changed me, and I think that that's what's been most impactful over the last couple of years is walking people through that process, um, taking people to the county jail, uh, giving them some resources to educate themselves, and then taking them to like a remerge graduation. Um, you know, I went to one this year, and 15 women were graduating. Eight of these women were looking at a life sentence in prison for a nonviolent drug related conviction. Um, between these 15 women, they had 34 kids. They were looking at, the other seven women were looking at a combined 99 years in prison, and it's like, Okay, for these 15 women, they're graduating today. They all had a job. They all had transportation. They all had housing that they were going to. For the first time in most of their lives, they had custody of all 34 of those kids. Um, and it cost the program $364,000 for all 15 of those women. And the recidivism rate coming out of that program over seven years, 114 graduates, is 5%. That's a third of the state average. Um, if they had gone to prison, it would have cost the state a million and a half dollars just to incarcerate them. And, and I mean, you all know the outcomes would have also been very different. And then we have to get to the questions of like, 
well, what would have happened to their kids? Yeah. Um, would they have gone into DHS custody? What kind of cycles would we have continued? And so for me, that's, that's, that's where I feel like placing that, that healthy burden on people, where over time they take on that burden and do whatever their passions and their skills and their heart dictates to play their role in it and making this situation look different has been most effective. You were an advisor to Governor Fallon. What would be your advice? We'll have a new governor, obviously, here in a few months. We don't know who it will be, but we'll have a new governor. And yep. what would your advice be to them to build on what Fallon has done mm -hmm. and maybe to fix, get to some of those things that she didn't get to? Yeah. I think there's a couple key things uh, that I've learned going through a task force process with Governor Fallon's office um, over the course of three years. Um, and it comes down to a couple things. So one, there's got to be a group of stakeholders convened around a table around a common goal, right? So I think we could all agree that we would love to be at or below national average in incarceration in five years. And, and whether it's DAs or judges or public defenders um, or corrections or whoever, they would all say like, yeah, that's, that's where we would want to get. Now you'll hear them explain and express different concerns about how we get there. Right, so you'll hear, you'll hear people say, well, I want to make sure public safety is maintained. I want to make sure that uh, it doesn't cost too much, that I can afford it in my budget. Um, you'll, you'll hear people say, well, I want to make sure that it doesn't cost too much political capital. For, they may not say that, but you know, that is a concern, like how much, yeah. among all these other crises that we have as a state, how much can we expend on this issue? So I think that's one thing. Second thing is you've got to insulate the process from the year-to-year -year legislative cycles. Um, so for me, this looks like getting a group together, giving them six to nine months and saying, I want you to come up with a five-year plan. And along the way, in year one, we're going to agree if public safety measures um, are at or below the last five-year average, or if we've increased over the last five years, it's no greater than the increase of the last five years, um, that will trigger year two's implementation. And then same thing at year two, triggers year three implementation. Uh, and then that way you focus all of this energy, all of this interest in criminal justice reform, if it's not related to that five-year plan, then it doesn't get talked about. And I feel like for a governor to come in and say, all right, I know it's an issue. I've convened a small group of stakeholders and experts to talk about it. And we're going to come up with a five-year plan that makes sure we maintain public safety. We do it in a way that makes fiscal sense. Um, and we're preparing our state for whatever's next. That um, I think that's actually how you get to making significant progress on a, on a huge issue like this. Because you can't do it one legislative cycle after one legislative cycle. It just doesn't work. Mm. The stakes are too high. Justin, I mentioned a story that you did a couple months ago about kind of the reform efforts in Texas. And it was a lot about you know, the actual policy and nuts and bolts of it. But you got into the politics a little bit and talking to some of the key lawmakers. I mean, what was your kind of biggest takeaway on how, how was a state like Texas, um, you know, a deeply red state, similar to Oklahoma in a lot of ways, how were they able to kind of shift the political narrative? I would ask the same question to Adam. My, my take was that you know he, he talked about convening that group of people in a room, mm -hmm. and I think it was remarkable that what the group of people in Texas was. It was an incredibly diverse, mm -hmm. ideologically diverse group. I mean, from fiscal conservative groups to I, I believe the ACLU or mm -hmm. groups similar to that. I mean, just across the spectrum. Um, you know, kind of tough on crime groups, public safety groups, for lack of a better term, to others that are more reform groups in prison. I mean, it was just, it was remarkable who they got together in a room, and they realized that they agreed on about 80% of things. Yeah. There were some things they were just not going to agree on, and that's fine. But they kind of focused on what they agreed on. It was yeah. a remarkable number of things. If, yeah. if that was my lesson from it, yeah. what do you think? Well, I think there were a couple of things kind of under undergirding all of that interest, and one was that it had become an emergency. 
So they had just received projections that their prison population was going to grow by 18,000 inmates in the next 10 years. They were going to need to build three new prisons. Um, Percentage-wise, that's a fraction of what ours is projected to grow by in the next 10 years. But for them, it was immediately an emergency. So it wasn't just a couple legislators saying, hey, we got to work on this. Everybody was like, oh my gosh, we can't do this. The second thing is that they had already allocated $500 million in the following year's budget to build new prisons. So they said the pitch for these legislators was like, hey, let's hold off on building those new prisons and let's take half of that. Let's take $241 million and invest that in alternative to incarceration programs and incentivize the creation and implementation of those programs by withholding state dollars for probation and parole departments for counties over 100,000 in population, right? So all the way from the very big picture, they had resources and they narrowed it all the way down into this really high level of accountability in implementing these alternative to incarceration programs. And that, that wheel we always talk about that needs to get going, which is like saving money in incarceration so that we can reinvest, mm-hmm. like yeah. that wheel immediately got going really quickly so that three years later they did another round, another three years later they did another round, and all of a sudden here we are 15 years later and you know they've saved $3 billion and closed eight institute, you know, all these numbers that we are so excited about. Um, but I think those two things, it's just different in Oklahoma. Like some people don't think it's an emergency yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're projected to grow by uh, 7,200 beds in the next 10 years. I mean, percentage-wise, that's that's almost three times what uh, Texas was looking at. And we also don't have the resources to invest at this point. Yeah. Um, so I think those are some, some big differences. And we're also Texas. looking at a large bill for new prisons. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think as much as $800 million, if, if I recall correctly. So, I mean, we're uh, to me, I thought we were in that exact same place in a lot of ways that Texas was. You make the case it's even maybe a little worse here um, is, because yeah. of a higher rate. I mean, you have to per, per capita is a little different. Yeah. So yeah, but to me, I thought we were in a remarkably similar place to where mm-hmm. Texas was. Yeah. We are now to where Texas was then when they decided to make these reforms. Yeah. How do you? Why are people here not convinced that that's an emergency? Well, I would say, too, I mean, let's not forget that the first time Governor Perry vetoed those bills. That's true. Yeah. You know, and they had to go back. They had, there was some education that needed to be done in Texas. Yeah. In Texas. Um, so I, I don't know that we, that there is definitely a growing sense that it's an emergency. I think Director Albaugh is doing a fantastic job elevating the level of this conversation and, and really drawing our state's attention to the root issues underlying some of the problems that we face um, in the Department of Corrections. But I think that we're, it's just taking longer, right? I mean, in Texas, maybe at that time, you know, maybe it was just corrections. Maybe there were a couple other things that they needed to work on that year. But I mean, think about all the problems that we're talking about. Think about education, DHS, um, not to mention the fact that we're in another gubernatorial cycle where, you know, you've got huge issues being talked about. this is just one other thing that, like, how loud do you have to get? How much of an emergency does it have to become to equal all these other things that we have going on as a state? And I just have to think that that plays a big part of it, too. Yeah. Is, is there a way to reduce uh, the, uh, the growing prison population or even reduce the prison population and avoid having to build two new prisons? I think that there is. I think, depending on who you ask, they would differ on where they feel like those levers are. I would say it's a couple a couple areas. One is obviously in terms of policy and statute, right? So that really determines who comes in. I mean, that's, that's policy, that's statute. Do they even interact with the criminal justice system? I think that's a huge question that we have to answer is, should prison be reserved for the people who pose a greater, the greatest risk to society? Um, 
or should people who maybe don't pose a great risk to society but, but maybe have some other needs that could be addressed outside of prison, given how high, how high of a cost it is and how lasting the impact is for someone, especially if they're low risk. I think that's, that's one area's kind of policy and, and statute. Um, I would say the other area is obviously on the back end of the process, right? So um, probation, parole, what does that process look like? How do we compare nationally? What are some ways that we could streamline that process and maybe increase that parole grant rate? Um, but again, that's, that's on the back end of it. So we've already spent the money in putting them in prison. Um, more likely than not, if they were low risk coming in, they are empirically, we know, at a higher risk now that they're coming out on the back end. Um, but again, I think we can look at, look at alternative to incarceration programs, right? So this is, again, going kind of back to the Texas model and other states that have done this really well. We're seeing signs of that in Oklahoma, right? I, I mentioned Remerge Women in Recovery in Tulsa. It's, uh, you know, these programs have been around for six or seven years. They don't, they don't receive any money from the state. It's all through foundations and private investment. Uh, and yet we're saving, you know, they estimate that they've saved the state over $100 million in the last six years with all these graduates from Remerge just in Oklahoma City. So I would say from a community standpoint, if judges are saying, like, I have to send them to prison, I don't have anywhere else to send them. Police officers are saying, like, look, if I pull up to somebody on the side of the street and they're, they're in the middle of a mental health crisis, I don't have anywhere else to take them. Mm -hmm. There is nowhere to take them but the county jail. Um, how do we as a community respond to those concerns of our public service? Do we say we would value having a place to take someone who's in the middle of a mental health crisis or who's um, in the throes of their addiction turning to uh, property crimes to support their addiction? Like, what are we going to say as a community? Because until we do something about that, they'll, judges, prosecutors, public defenders, police officers will continue to turn to the only resources that they have, which in many cases is incarceration. Yeah, well, it's fascinating because I think the last time we had an open seat for governor, you know, eight years ago, you know, this was more of a wedge issue, and right now you have two candidates running, and, and both are talking about how they want to do more yeah. to reduce incarceration rates. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was at a forum, uh, a mental health forum last week, and, and both Edmondson and Stitt were almost kind of outdoing each other, and who wanted to be, you know, the best governor when it comes to reducing the, pot, the mm -hmm. you know, sentencing laws and stuff like that. So this big shift in conversation, um, the politically speaking, um, underway in Oklahoma, and uh, it'll be a big issue for, for the next go next governor, definitely. I so. think so, too. Well, Adam, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, and coming in and sharing your expertise on this topic. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break. When we return on political state, we're going to dive in a little bit into some gubernatorial polls and also talk about the U.S. Senate's confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh. We'll be back after a quick break. All right, welcome back to this week's episode of Political State from the Oklahoman. I'm here with Justin and Dale. Ben Felder here in the Oklahoman's video studios. And here in our second segment, we want to dive in a little bit to the gubernatorial race. We're kind of on that, uh, I don't know if we're on the home stretch yet, but a, a little more, a little less than a month to go in the race between Kevin Stitt and Drew Edmondson. And hey guys, the conventional wisdom is this is a Republican state, the Republican is the front runner, um, but maybe a little tighter this year for a few reasons. We've talked about this before. There's been some polls that show that this is kind of a tighter race. And just out this week is a poll from uh, Cole Hargrave and Snod Snodgrass and Associates that shows Stitt with 46%, Edmondson at 40%, and the Libertarian candidate Chris Powell at 4%. Um, that's close, definitely by Oklahoma standards. What do you think? That's within swinging distance for Drew Edmondson. Uh, and if anything, it, it should give uh, Kevin Stitt reason to uh, um, really turn up, turn up the gas, so to speak, in trying to, uh, to get over these next few weeks. 
Um, I, I think it's probably going to end up being a close vote, um, uh, certainly closer than we've seen in, in recent gubernatorial contests. Um, and uh, uh, I, I'd, I'd be interested to see if there are any other polls coming out as we get closer to see if that gap narrows. Uh, and also, is there money gonna, going to come into Oklahoma uh, for either of these two candidates, the, the Democrat or Republican candidate? Um, based on these numbers. Yeah, and the key for those national groups is going to be, is it competitive? Yeah. I mean, if you're a yeah. Democratic group, does is, is Edmondson have a chance? And we've seen some national groups do some spending. The Republican and Democratic Governors Associations have kind of been taking the negative lane with their ads, while for the most part, Stitt and Edmondson have kind of been just running kind of, I would call generic campaign commercials, just kind of promoting themselves as good guys. Um, you know, what's interesting to me about Edmondson is that for years in Oklahoma, the Democrats have talked about how we've got a we've got a weak bench. We need to rebuild that bench of candidates in the legislature that can grow into the you know statewide offices that we want to can be competitive in. We need a dynamic person. And four years ago, George, Joe Dorman ran for Demo for for governor as a Democrat. And, and nothing to take anything away from Joe, but it almost felt like he was you know someone's got to do it, so I'm going to do it kind of thing. And it wasn't terribly too competitive of a race. And the idea that I, when I talked to Democrats, they said, you know, we need a charismatic person in there. We need this rising star. Edmondson is not that. No, he's a very accomplished and seasoned politician. Um, but is that really the key? I mean, maybe that's what's giving him him a chance. Is he's a known name? Right. Um, you know, even if you're a Republican, maybe you feel like I trust Edmondson for a lot of reasons because I've seen his work. And maybe that's what Democrats needed is a, you know, kind of a, an established, you know, seasoned politician. What do you think? Yeah. So the um I was looking at the the uh, unfavorable numbers. Um, Edmondson uh, is at I think 25 here. Sid is at 29, um, and and that may sort of indicate where um, that you know Edmondson may be you know holding on here because he doesn't have uh, uh, or he has a relatively low uh, unfavorable rating. Uh, not many people have a lot of bad things to say about it. It's pretty rare in today's right. world for, for politicians right. or anything, really. Yeah. And and it also kind of shows that maybe some of the ads that we saw about Kevin Stitt and his uh, his business practices in the past really kind of stuck with some voters. If he has higher unfavorable ratings, of course that uh, all that's kind of in line with what party you belong to. Yeah. Uh, another thing on that on that point um, is the the numbers for senior citizens mm -hmm. uh, who the senior citizens support. It kind of breaks even. Yes, did at 45, Edmondson at 44, with uh, voters 65 and older. And what's surprising about that is I think your average person is probably going to think, oh, the older they are, the more conservative they are, they're going to lean Republican. But uh, Edmondson is holding his own, more than holding his own, with uh, senior citizens. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I'd, I'd kind of like to see an explanation. Uh, um, maybe we can uh, have, maybe we can ask Pat McFerrin, the guy who, who did this poll, maybe we can ask him uh, in a future episode of this podcast. But... Uh, one reason that I thought may explain that is that people over 65 have had several chances to vote for Drew Edmondson. They've seen his name on the ballot. They may have even voted for him as Attorney General um, uh, for several times as he ran. Yeah. So uh, it, it may be sort of that uh, that reason why incumbents tend to win. It may, it may be uh, that kind of reason why Drew Edmondson has uh, such popularity among senior citizens. 
Yeah. And he and Edmondson has, has presented himself as a moderate Democrat. I feel like he's yeah. got the resume to back that up as well. I mean, this is not your, you know, Bay Area, you know, liberal Democrat, even though some national Republican groups are trying to trying to paint him that way. Uh, but even Kevin Stitt, who, uh, you know, Edmondson and Democrats are trying to paint as just a continuation of, of Mary Fallon. I mean, he had been critical of the Fallon administration as presenting himself as an outsider. But as an outsider, what comes with that is maybe lower lower name recognition. Uh, Justin, for you, when you look at these these polls, what, what jumped out at you? You know, I mean, those those senior citizen numbers, for sure. And I, I think Dale has as good an explanation as I could come up with that, um, yeah, I mean, these are people who have voted for Edmondson probably in the past. It is closer than I thought, and it is, um, it's interesting, without the Libertarian, it's probably even closer, as uh, Pat McFerrin notes, that um, the presence of Chris Powell on the ballot seems to actually be hurting Edmondson, not Stitt. This is often a debate about whether who Libertarians help or hurt. Um, obviously, ideologically, they're closer to Republicans, but they're often sort of protest votes or you know at least anti-incumbent votes and so he probably uh, the libertarian probably takes away from um, Edmondson a little bit in that regard and just that uh, you know in terms of like anti-republican votes they're, they're yeah. not quite splitting it by any means but they're, he's taking a little chunk of that away so. yeah there's a couple other areas where it's kind of in line with the the national you know, voting population right now. Look at the urban-rural split, the gender split. Yeah. I mean, among male voters, the Republican Kevin Stitt is, is doing best. With female voters, the Democrat Drew Edmondson is doing better. That's kind of what we've seen nationally. And then urban-rural, urban and probably not shocking, Edmondson's strongest numbers are coming from the urban centers of Oklahoma City and Tulsa, Stitt doing well in the rural areas. Although I bet Edmondson feels like he feels like he can maybe be competitive in the rural areas, given his, um, you know, background as a as a rural Oklahoman. Although a couple of years ago, he kind of became the the mascot for the anti right to farm bill. How much do you think that's yeah. going to hurt him this year? Uh, I think it'll hurt him in the western parts of the state. I, I doubt he'll even win a county in western Oklahoma. Um, uh, Drew is from eastern Oklahoma, northeastern Oklahoma to be to be specific. I think. Um, if he were to win rural counties, it would be in eastern Oklahoma. Um, but, you know, you note here uh, that uh, the pollster, uh, Pat McFerrin, found that it's becoming more competitive. Uh, Democrats are becoming more competitive in urban areas. Uh, while in rural areas, the conservative really, conservatism is really getting stronger. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think, you know, if Edmondson feels like he has a chance. He's got to really get people in urban areas and even suburban areas out to vote um, because he really can't rely on uh, Muskogee County or uh, uh, McAllister to bring him, uh, lead him to victory. Yeah, I, I don't know what I think about the right to farm hurting him, and, and I, I'm going to preface this by saying, I, you know, here I am in the. You know, in this bubble in downtown Oklahoma City, uh, you know, I'm not the, the foremost expert on agricultural issues, but the right to farm uh, state question, I mean, this was something we'd seen in other states. It seemed to be really kind of pushed by outside groups. And it, it didn't seem to be something that like local farmers were, were clamoring for. Now, right. given the choice, said, sure, right to farm. We're, we're gonna pick something that gives us, you know, more flexibility and more freedom. But I'm not sure that I saw it as something that was just grassroots efforts amongst farmers across Oklahoma. And so maybe he can, you know, maybe that's not as detrimental um, a, a reason, but I think you're right. His, his tough play in these rural areas 
it may not be so much about right to farm. It may just be because of the political realities of of our of our rural parts parts of the state. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I don't think he was going to do very well in Western Oklahoma anyway. So yeah. yeah. Well, as we wrap up here, um, you know, the big political news across the nation is the confirmation process of Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court. Justin, in today's Oklahoma and the Friday issue, you had a story about Oklahoma's two U.S. Senators who say they are supporting Brett Kavanaugh. That vote's already taken place, or at least the first vote. Uh, that's not really a shocking headline. My seven-year-old probably would have predicted that <laughs> Langford and Inhoff would, are still in, in the bag for, are still supporting um, Kavanaugh. But what was interesting about your story, and is always interesting when you talk to those two, is they both have kind of different styles. Inhoff is seen this as a Democratic witch hunt kind of took on the tone of Brett Kavanaugh at his confirmation or his hearing last week. Uh, Langford's a little bit more um, diplomatic, maybe strong supporter of Kavanaugh, but says he's you know sympathetic to the allegations that um, some women have brought against him. I, did we learn any? I mean, what did you learn in, in talking to the Oklahoma's two senators? I mean, obviously they're they're supporting him. Yeah, I talked to both of them by phone uh, yesterday early evening. Um, after they had a chance to go through the FBI files uh, that were released yesterday, released to them at least. And yeah, it, you're exactly right. I mean, you look at the voting records of Jim Inhofe and James Langford, and they're almost identical. They are very similar conservative Republicans. They don't surprise you a lot in their votes, and they don't surprise each other a lot in their votes. They're, they're pretty similar to each other, but the way they talk about some issues, and this is one of them, remarkably different. I mean, just the tone that they take. And I was on Twitter talking about this a little bit this morning was kind of mocked because people don't care about tone. And, you know, if the votes are the same, and I certainly understand that what the vote is far more important than anything else. But the way they talk about this is still a noticeable difference between them. When you talk to them back to back, as I did yesterday, you see a lot of differences. And so I'll just highlight two points. Um, these are questions, I had a question similar to both of them about what you make of Dr. Christine Ford's allegations. And, you know, is she outright lying? Is she, you know, did something happen to her that was not by Kavanaugh? Or is she telling the absolute truth that what happened to her um, was done to her by Brett Kavanaugh? And obviously neither of them believe that Kavanaugh did that. Um, but the, the response is still quite different. So we'll start with Inhofe first. Quote, you almost have to come to the conclusion that she and the Democrats were doing that together. The mere fact that she gave that information to the Democrats, they sat on it for two months and waited until just the time when it'd be the last minute and give them an excuse to delay. And it worked, it was ingenious, but that makes me believe she was, that they were doing that together with the Democrats. Otherwise, why would that have happened? Uh, so that's Inhofe first. Quite an allegation. Yeah, uh, it's conspiratorial. I mean, it's suggesting that there is... Looping her into it, that she's a part of this. I mean, we've heard Republicans, plenty of Republicans say the Democrats are just playing politics. It's D.C., it's what they do. But to, to lump the victim in this and say, no, she's just as much a part of trying to do that. Yeah, interesting. It is yeah. a very bold allegation. Langford, on the other hand, quote, I don't have any reason to doubt something happened to them, referring to Kavanaugh's accusers. I just don't have any evidence it was Brett Kavanaugh, and it would seem completely out of his character based on every other person that's testifying on his behalf and has done so for decades. So while I don't have any reason to doubt Dr. Ford that something terrible occurred, I just don't see it fitting into Brett Kavanaugh as being that person. Yeah. So obviously he is saying that, and he, I talked to him uh, 
quite a bit about what victims should do, and he absolutely said victims should be supported. Uh, sexual assault victims should always feel comfortable coming forward. Uh, some of the animosity towards her has been inappropriate, and he's uh, he sees himself as very supportive of um, sexual assault victims. He just doesn't believe, and he, again, he, as he says there, he believes something happened that these women were assaulted. He just doesn't have any corroborating evidence that it was Brett Kavanaugh, therefore he cannot base his vote on that. Or yeah. at least he can't vote no for that reason. Yeah. So that's a, again, I understand the votes will be the same from these two, and it's very easy to just say, therefore that's all that matters. They're, they're both gonna vote for Brett Kavanaugh anytime they get a chance, both in cloture this morning and when the final vote happens uh, most likely tomorrow, Saturday. But this is still noticeably different tone between two conservative Republican senators from yeah. Oklahoma. And, I, and I'm not going to speculate their, their motives or, that, or their sincerity about what they said. You know, I'll take them for their word. They believe what they said. When I read that in the paper this morning, the thing I thought of was Inhofe was speaking as the politician as, as wants to say what's in his mind. And Langford kind of struck me as kind of like the, the press secretary saying, like, well, what he meant to say was. I mean, it was a lot more kind of uh, non-confrontational. But that's also a product of their... Uh, their experience in the Senate. I mean, Inhofe has, um, you know, been there for a long time. Uh, isn't going anywhere, at least for the foreseeable future. You know, feels like he's very battle tested. And as someone who's older in their profession, sometimes feels like they can be a little bit more outspoken. Um, and it works to his advantage. Langford, a little, little younger, a little newer. Um, you know, maybe trying to kind of, you know, walk that line a little bit and, and not wanting to, you know, cast aside. You know, even the complaints of his, his opponents yet at this point. But yeah, they're very stark differences. It, it didn't surprise me at all that there's this kind of difference. Um, um, I've interviewed James Langford a number of times, and it, it feels like he would be someone who, uh, although faced with a vote like this, would um, make it a point to remain compassionate and to, and to show people that he's being compassionate. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just the kind of guy he, he yeah. seems like. I, I, there were some responses from Senator Flake that kind of reminded me of Langford. Yeah. I mean, Langford didn't say that some of the things that, that Senator Flake said, and the spotlight wasn't on Langford like it was on Flake, and there's a lot of, I'm not trying to say that they're that, they're that similar of, um, of senators, um, but you're right. I mean, Langford is, uh, you know, a minister. He comes from that evangelical community. I think there has been an effort for him. If he's going to still disagree with something, he still kind of wants to do it with that kind of softer edge. He would probably say com more compassionate tone. But uh, but yeah, you're right. We've we've seen this kind of kind of before. He's also just a much more polished politician. He's well, very. That's I mean, he yeah, is. Well, yes, he, he is in the kind of traditional public speaking. He is just a little more eloquent in that way. And he is. And and I, and I know what you mean by that, but I don't think, I mean I don't think that Inhofe isn't thinking about what he's saying. I think he means what he says. Yeah. I, think, I mean that is his style. They both have their styles, and they're both very good at their styles. And that's kind of the point of why I wanted to bring this up is because they have kind of their unique styles, even though they you know they come from the same party and are voting the same way on most things. But yes, you're right. That kind of more polished brand, um, you know, traditionally polished brand, you know, for Langford. But yeah. uh, you know, I think Inhofe, you know thinks carefully about what he says as well, too. Is, is it good for Oklahoma to have a, a, a senator kind of on each side of that, uh, that tonal uh, line? I don't know. That's an interesting... It's just I mean, such if, an... If, if you're a Republican and you're really looking for someone to, to work for in a Senate race or someone to really cheer for, 
you know, is it good that you have two options? There's, there's probably something for everybody and one of those too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they kind of, I mean, depending on what you're looking for out of the, the news of the day, I mean, yeah, they can offer you different things, at least from the Republican side of things, yeah, of course. Langford has a way of making people think that he's on their side from just about anywhere on the spectrum. <laughs> Not quite, uh, just in the way he speaks. If you heard him give a speech, on something, if he wasn't announcing how he was voting, or he didn't know how he voted, yeah. he has—he's pretty talented in that way. That you feel like he's on your side, which is often gets him in trouble, or you know, there are protests at his office because yeah. people believe they can actually change the way he sees things. And that's, and that, a, great, that's a great point. And so that, that's generally a good thing in a politician, I think. I think constituents yeah. want to feel like, even Democrats. Their constituents often, I, I mean, going to the protests outside Lankford's office in Automobile Alley, they feel like he will hear them out and that they may be able to change his opinion on things. I, that's a great point. And as someone who has seen both of them speak, I think you're right. If you know, Lankford goes out into a crowd where he knows he has opponents, I think he thinks, you know what, I'm going to at least try to you know, get him to my side. I don't think it's likely to happen, but I'm at right. least going to try to reason with him. While Inhofe is probably like, hey, young pup, you're wasting your time. Who cares about that? Uh, this is what I think. So, uh, yeah, interesting comments from both of them, um, and we'll definitely be following along with the, the big vote that it's expected to happen tomorrow, although we know how our local delegation is going to be voting on that. So that's going to do it for this week's episode of Political State. You can find this in every episode at newsok.com, your favorite podcasting app. We'll be back next week. We'll continue to talk about the elections as they come closer. With Justin and Dale, I'm Ben from the Oklahoman. We'll see you next Friday.